Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony. Welcome back to episode number 27 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. This time, I want to talk about Article 1, Section 11 of the Michigan Constitution. Thanks to television shows like Law and Order, we're all very familiar with the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution. It's the protection against unreasonable searches and seizures, and Michigan has adopted that same protection into our own state constitution. Do you know what it means or how it's applied in our state? Do you know where and when a search or a seizure will be considered reasonable? When it's considered unreasonable? Questions to these and more will be answered in this podcast. But first, your spoonful of legalese. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8 Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the state of Michigan and ask for their lawyer referral service program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal area. Article 1, Section 11, Searches and Seizures. The person, houses, papers, possessions, electronic data, and electronic communications of every person shall be secure from unreasonable searches and seizures. No warrant to search any place, or to seize any person or things, or to access electronic data or electronic communications, shall issue without describing them, nor without probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation. The provisions of this section shall not be construed to bar from evidence in any criminal proceeding any narcotic drug, firearm, bomb, explosive, or any other dangerous weapon seized by a peace officer outside the curtilage of any dwelling house in this state. First of all, do you know what these provisions are in our United States and state constitution? Any idea why we consider these protections so inherently important to our rights and our liberties? Well, if your guess was, (laughs) because England gave us no such protections, well, you're basically right. When we were subjects of the crown... There were things called writs of assistance, which allowed the police to enter any house or other building to search for undescribed contraband. These writs remained in effect essentially for life. 
But because constitutions are nothing more than restrictions placed upon government, one of the greatest protections our founding fathers believed necessary against government was the protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. But the key word here is reasonable. What is a reasonable search? What is a reasonable seizure? This vague language gets tested time and time again as technology evolves what may as technology evolves what may the government search as it relates to your laptop or cell phone or tablet or your car or your house you get the idea for that reason the first two sentences of our article 1 section 11 effectively mirrors what is in the united states constitution's fourth amendment however Interestingly, and pursuant to a case we'll talk about, a third sentence was added to this section in 1936. This was the result of a Michigan Supreme Court case and has its own constitutional result. But listen, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. This constitutional provision in our state constitution is included to mirror the United States Constitution's Fourth Amendment. And much like the protections within the United States Constitution, the Michigan Constitution provides a protection commonly referred to as an exclusionary rule. This is a judicially created remedy that prohibits the use at trial of evidence obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment or our Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 11. The idea is we don't want the government to benefit from the fruits of its unlawful behavior. If something is obtained by the police in violation of our search and seizure protections it's not going to be admissible in court. And if it can't be introduced as evidence in court, there's a high likelihood it's going to result in the dismissal of any criminal charges against a defendant. Look, the deck is already stacked against a defendant. The prosecution should not be allowed to cheat the judicial system by using ill-gotten gains from unconstitutional actions. So, the first case we're going to talk about is People versus Markshausen. It is a 1919 Michigan Supreme Court case, and it gives us a great deal of history on these writs of assistance that I've talked about. The Michigan Supreme Court really includes a nice history lesson on how these writs were used and why our founding fathers were so adamant that the protections against unreasonable searches and seizures must be incorporated into our United States Constitution. The court waxed poetic when they noted the following. It ought not to be necessary to recall the fact that it is of the essence of a free government that the individual shall be secure in his person, his home, and his property from unlawful invasion, from unlawful search, from unlawful seizure. The writing of these provisions into the federal constitution, into the constitution of every state of the union, was not an idle ceremony. With a clearness of vision, our forefathers provided for a lawful search and seizure, one supported by oath or affirmation, describing the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized, and in the same section safeguarded the rights of the individual by inhibiting unreasonable unlawful search. They provided an orderly manner for search and seizure and prohibited all others. These writs which, as noted, originated in England and were used against the colonists, allowed for government officials to enter a person's house, search wherever and whenever, and seize whatever evidence the police believed necessary to prove a crime. 
But what specifically was the government so worried about was going to occur? <laughs> Seditious libel. It was the goal of government officials to find any writings which might contribute to the uprising against the crown. Therefore, it was believed necessary to suppress any seditious utterances. But in 1766, both in the colonies as well as England, the citizens were becoming outraged, such writs were allowable, and legal commentators began to speak out against said writs. In England, the House of Commons passed resolutions condemning the writs, and a member of the House of Commons coined what we now understand to be our house is our castle philosophy. Every man's house is called his castle. Why? Because it is surrounded by a moat or defended by a wall? No. It may be a straw-built hut, the wind may whistle around it, the rain may enter it, but the king cannot. Around the same time, a Massachusetts advocate general for the crown resigned his position and went to the defense of colonists who were arrested pursuant to writs of assistance used against them when a search turned up writings of the men and were subsequently arrested. The former prosecutor turned defense attorney said that these writs were the worst instrument of arbitrary power, the most destructive of English liberty, and were the worst fundamental principles of law that ever was found in an English law book. Why? Because they placed the liberty of every man into the hands of every petty officer. Future President John Adams wrote in his journal, quote, Then and there was the first scene of the first act of opposition to the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. Then and there the child of independence was born, end quote. The Michigan Supreme Court said in this case, the search and seizure which occurred in Mr. Markhausen's home was an unauthorized trespass and an invasion of his constitutional rights. They noted there was no search warrant executed, no one to swear an oath or affirmation as to the probability of a crime having occurred in the man's home, and the court noted that the officers entered the house by command of no court, nor any search authorized by any legal processes. They simply went into the person's home because they believed there was alcohol to be found. Finally, the court said, quote, these rights of the individual in his person and property should be held sacred, and any attempt to fritter them away under the guise of enforcing drastic Sumptuary legislation, no matter how beneficial to the people it may be claimed to be, must meet with the clear and earnest disapproval of the courts, end quote. So the court finds that the search and seizure actions taken by the police officers was illegal. So what should be done about the illegal alcohol found in Mr. Markshausen's home? Because remember, prohibition started in Michigan well before it was implemented via the United States Constitution. So owning and possessing this hooch was against the law in Michigan, even though it was still legal under federal law. But Michigan Supreme Court looked at three different United States Supreme Court cases to determine how to handle the objects obtained from an illegal search and seizure. While I'm not going to go through each of them, I will tell you the Supremes discuss the cases of Boyd versus the United States, Adams versus the United States, and Weeks versus the United States. The long and short of them collectively? Any evidence obtained from a defendant 
in violation of his constitutional rights and by unlawful search and seizure and without any search warrant, it becomes the duty of the court to order the return of the unlawfully obtained evidence to the defendant. For those above reasons, Mr. Markhausen's uh, criminal charges were dropped and the alcohol confiscated was returned back to him. But what makes this case so important is that, although not required to do so by the federal constitution, our state Supreme Court adopted the exclusionary rule as the remedy for violations of our Article 1, Section 11. Our second case, People v. Stein, was another Michigan Supreme Court case from 1933, and it has an interesting spin to it, and pun is moderately intended here, as it has to do with the search and seizure of a vehicle, a car specifically. But the spin is what happens as a result of the case. But before I get to that, well, let's discuss this case so that you can understand its consequences. All right, so it's 1932. And we're just about to see the end of Prohibition. But we're not quite there yet, and concerns over bootlegging and rum running was happening in Detroit. Four police officers were in an unmarked police car in downtown Detroit when they see a taxi cab speeding at the, wait for it, excessive rate of 32 miles an hour. In the taxi was Defendant Stein. He was in the front passenger seat, and there was another fellow in the back seat behind the taxi driver. When the police car got close enough to the passenger side of the taxi, one of the four police officers was able to look over and see Defendant Stein pull something from his jacket pocket and put it on the back seat of the taxi cab behind him. Defendant Stein's actions led the police officer to believe Stein was putting a gun away. This caused the police officer driving the unmarked car to pull the taxi cab over, arrest passenger Stein, and search all occupants of the taxi. Sure enough, both the backseat passenger was found to have an unlicensed gun on his person, as well as the gun that Stein put on the backseat, it was also unlicensed. The reason for the arrest and search relied upon the police officer who was in the backseat of the cop car and saw the actions taken by defendant Stein. At trial, the police officer testified, although he didn't see what defendant Stein took out of his pocket, he merely arrested him on this suspicion because of the motion that he made. The officers admitted they had no prior knowledge of or acquaintance with any of the defendants in the car. The Michigan Supreme Court ultimately found in favor of the defendant and dismissed the criminal conviction against both the defendants, Mr. Stein and the fellow that was in the back seat behind the taxi driver. The Supremes found that the trial court record left no doubt that the officers arrested the defendants on mere general suspicion, not for any specific offense. More so, the court found the police officers never argued to the contrary. After all, the car was unmarked. Only one of the three police officers was actually in a uniform. So it's hard to believe, our Michigan Supreme Court said, the defendant Stein was trying to hide the gun in the first place. He never knew the car next to him, nor the unmarked vehicle's inhabitants were the police. Because remember, the car was unmarked, 
and only one of the four officers was in an actual uniform. The rest were in street clothes. This is relevant because it shows Defendant Stein wasn't trying to hide anything. He was just legitimately moving something from his jacket to the back seat. And if the police never saw the gun in the first place, how do they know it wasn't a box of candy or some other such legal object? It was because it was 1931 and Detroit was known to be a hotbed of illegal booze smuggling by criminals with guns. And that's why the police officers were suspicious. But mere general suspicion that perhaps a crime is being committed does not justify an arrest. Now, the Michigan Supreme Court did say that speed is a reason to pull someone over. And if, and remember, they're driving at the excessive rate of 32 miles an hour. If the officer had suspicions as to the inside of the taxicab itself, this case could have gone in a different direction had the officer only uh, searched the vehicle, not the defendant's. After all, he saw defendant Stein put something behind him into the backseat area of the cab. The majority of justices held that the mistake the officer made was in arresting the defendants before they had reasonable grounds to believe that a crime was being committed by the defendants. And again, the crime here is possession of an unlicensed gun. The court went on to opine, it was conceded that the result of the search cannot be taken into consideration in any way in determining the validity of the arrest. Or maybe said another way, you can't arrest someone in hopes of doing a search to find a reason to justify that arrest, right? The, the ends can't justify the means. More so, the court stated if these types of arrests were deemed appropriate, again, that arresting someone in hopes of finding something to validate why they should be arrested, then no citizen would be safe from the hazard of police annoyance simply for making a sudden motion with his hands. Because remember, our defendant here didn't know the people next to his car were police officers. They were in an unmarked car in plain clothes. So Stein's sudden hand movements within the taxi cab wasn't to hide his unlicensed gun. He made no, he made no action to try to hide an unlicensed gun because he didn't know that the police were right next to him. He just thought it was a, another car with four dudes in it. For these reasons, the Michigan Supreme Court dismissed Stein's criminal convictions. And this caused quite the uproar in Michigan. So much so that within two and a half years, the citizens of Michigan ratified a change to the Michigan Constitution to address this perceived problem. Remember, in both this case and the Markhausen case, if illegal activity is discovered pursuant to an unreasonable search and seizure, it has to be excluded from the criminal trial. And if the objects themselves, like illegal guns, illegal alcohol, if those are the reasons why the defendant is being charged with a crime, then the exclusion of those items from the trial means the prosecutor can't win her case and the defendant must have his criminal charges dismissed. But if the Michigan Constitution is amended to say what things couldn't be excluded even if found pursuant to an unreasonable search and seizure, then those things could be brought into court and used against the defendant. How else can I say this? I fear I'm speaking in double negatives here. So let's review that last sentence of Article 1, Section 11. It reads, The provisions of this section shall not be construed to bar from evidence in any criminal proceeding any narcotic drug, firearm, bomb, 
explosive, or any other dangerous weapon seized by a peace officer outside the curtilage of any dwelling house in this state. So we're expressly stating that, yes, police can't engage in an unreasonable search and seizure of a person and their possessions. If the police do engage in an unreasonable search and seizure and something illegal is found, it cannot be used by the prosecutor against the defendant in a criminal trial. However, if the police do engage in an unreasonable search and seizure and they find drugs, firearms, bombs, other dangerous weapons outside of a person's home, like, for example, in their car, then it is okay and those items can be used against the defendant in their trial. All right, how'd I do? Does that, does that make more sense what change was made to the Michigan Constitution in 1936 because of this Stein case that we've been discussing? I hope so, because I need to give you another judicial history lesson. The United States Supreme Court took up a case called Mapp v. Ohio in 1961. This is an incredibly important Supreme Court decision, which impacted the entire country. In that case, it made the concept of the exclusionary rule applicable to every single state in the United States. And remember, the exclusionary rule is that idea of things found pursuant to an unlawful search and seizure must be excluded from trial. As a federal constitutional legal protection, all citizens in the United States were given the right to exclude unlawfully obtained evidence from being used against them at their trial, even if they were being charged with state crimes. So when 1963 comes around, just two years after this major United States Supreme Court decision, Michigan is writing a new state constitution. Because remember, this is the constitution that we're working off from right now that I'm, that I'm doing this podcast on is, is, is being based on this 1963 Michigan constitution. And the framers of that constitution, that 1963 Michigan constitution, intentionally kept that third sentence of Article 1, Section 11. To be clear, the third sentence... The provisions of this section shall not be construed to bar from evidence in any criminal proceeding any narcotic drug, firearm, bomb, explosive, or any other dangerous weapon seized by a peace officer outside the curtilage of any dwelling house in this state. Is in complete contradiction of what the United States Supreme Court ruled in Map versus Ohio, and yet it was still intentionally kept in our Constitution. With that, let's discuss the next case, which is People versus Pennington, a 1970 Michigan Supreme Court case. Now, mind you, by 1970, when the Michigan Supreme Court is, is, is ruling on People versus Pennington, it's been 34 years since our provision allowing for dangerous weapons to be used in a defendant's criminal trial was added to the Michigan Constitution. And it's been nine years since Matt versus Ohio ruled, you can't use unlawfully obtained evidence from a search against a criminal defendant. And it's been seven years since the newest Michigan constitution was written, keeping in that third sentence, allowing for dangerous weapons to be used in trial, even if it was obtained through an illegal search. Which, remember, is in contradiction to the United States Supreme Court's Matt versus Ohio ruling. All right, so get into the fact pattern. 
1968, and a private citizen saw our defendant Pennington driving a car on telegraph in Detroit in what the caller described as an erratic manner. The officer who takes the call is able to locate Pennington and begins to follow him to observe Pennington's driving. Sure enough, the officer sees the driving is indeed erratic and pulls defendant Pennington over. Defendant Pennington is deemed to be intoxicated, so the officer arrests Mr. Pennington, puts the defendant in the back of the cop car, calls a wrecker to tow the automobile to a gas station across the street from the police post, and books defendant Pennington pursuant to an arrest for drunk driving. The officer then goes across the street to the gas station and proceeds to search Pennington's car. While doing so, the officer comes across a locked glove box. Using Pennington's car keys, the officer unlocks the glove box, opens it up, and finds both a half-empty bottle of whiskey and a loaded gun. The officer takes these two items, goes back to the police station, and re-arrests Pennington for carrying a concealed weapon in a car, which at the time was a criminal offense. At Mr. Pennington's trial, the prosecutor attempts to introduce into evidence both the half-empty bottle of whiskey and the loaded gun. The trial court rules that the search and seizure of the car was unlawful and excludes the bottle of whiskey from being allowed into evidence. However, the trial court allows the gun to be introduced into evidence because of the third sentence of Article 1, Section 11. That's the sentence which allows the dangerous weapons to be introduced into evidence even if the search and seizure was unlawful. For that reason, Mr. Pennington is convicted of carrying a gun in a motor vehicle. For obvious reasons, Defendant Pennington appeals his conviction to the Michigan Court of Appeals, but they find in favor of the prosecutor. Specifically, they punt the ball by saying that because the Michigan Supreme Court has never ruled the third sentence of Article 1, Section 11 to be unconstitutional, despite the Mapp v. Ohio United States Supreme Court case, they weren't in a position to make a ruling to the contrary. Hence, the reason we have this case at hand. So there were two questions the Michigan Supreme Court had to answer. First, was the search and seizure of Mr. Pennington's car lawful? And second, is the third sentence of Article 1, Section 11 in the Michigan Constitution in violation of the United States Constitution's Fourth Amendment? <laughs> Spoiler alert, yes and yes are the answers to those questions. To begin, the Supremes opined the search and seizure in this case was too remote in time or place to be incidental to the arrest which was made for driving while under the influence of intoxicating liquors. As you, dear listeners, no doubt are aware, there are certain instances where a warrantless search is legal. One of those times is what is called a search incident to an arrest, and it's exactly what it sounds like. You arrest someone, and you do a search. Typically, however, and to be clear, I'm painting with an extremely broad brush right now, those searches incident to an arrest are done for the safety of the police officer. It usually has to be within the quote-unquote wingspan of the defendant. So, you know, think like a hidden gun near the defendant. Or maybe you're searching uh, the person themselves to make sure that the defendant has no weapon on their person. 
Or another incident could be uh, when searching a house to make sure nobody is laying in wait to harm the police officer while they're distracted. One other time you may have a warrantless search is during an inventory search. Inventory searches can be performed in homes, but are usually performed in cars. Look, things turn up missing when they're in police custody. So the police will inventory the contents of a car so that they have documentation as to what was found. This protects police departments from defendants alleging $50,000 in cash was taken from the car. How would the police prove the negative? How do they prove there wasn't $50,000 in the car? Well, a videoed and supervised inventory is one way to protect themselves. But the Michigan Supreme Court said in this case, why is defendant Pennington's car even being searched? He was arrested for drunk driving. You prove a drunk driving case by showing the defendant was driving erratically. Maybe that he smelled of alcohol or perhaps a roadside test like the alphabet or the toe-to-toe the -to -toe straight line walk was administered and the driver blows a 0 0.08 or higher on a breathalyzer machine. Defendant Pennington was already locked up in a holding cell. If you're going to search the car, well, that should have been done immediately while Pennington was in the back of the police car while on Telegraph Road. Now, sometime later, after the arrest and well away from the arrest site, why now search the personal vehicle? And more specifically, why search a locked glove box? The court rules the reason for the arrest gave no cause for the search of the automobile that defendant was driving, particularly since he was already in police custody. So, because the search was deemed illegal, our Michigan Supreme Court now had to determine if the fruits of that unlawful search should be allowed to be entered into evidence as required by the Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 11, Sentence 3. What was most fascinating about this opinion was how reluctant the six justices were to rule that the third sentence was unconstitutional because it violated the United States Supreme, the United States Constitution. See, prior to Mr. Pennington's case, there were two times when a Michigan criminal defendant appealed his or her conviction to the United States Supreme Court trying to make the claim that the third sentence of Article 1, Section 11 in the Michigan Constitutional was unconstitutional and in violation of the United States Constitution's Fourth Amendment. But those two times that those appeals made their way to the United States Supreme Court, neither time did the U.S. Supreme Court take up either case. Meaning, by rejecting both criminal defendants' appeals, the United States Supremes were tacitly condoning Michigan's third sentence of its Constitution, or of its Article 1, Section 11. So, said another way, maybe, two times the United States Supreme Court had the opportunity to take up a case involving Article 1, Section 11, Sentence Number 3 of the Michigan Constitution, and both times the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear those appeals. So, what should be made of that, our Michigan Supreme Court justices wondered. Well, the seventh justice wrote in his dissent that he thinks the third sentence was completely constitutional and pointed to the fact the United States Supreme Court could have twice addressed it, but both times declined to do so. 
that if this sentence was so unconstitutional, why wouldn't the United States Supreme Court take the case and slap Michigan down for allowing this provision to stand? And while the other six justices saw there may be value in that philosophy, they nevertheless believed it was only a matter of time until the United States Supreme Court accepted an appeal from a Michigan criminal defendant and would rule the third sentence to be unconstitutional. As a matter of fact, they wrote the following two sentences. It avails little, then, to postpone decision in this court until the United States Supreme Court first has come to grips, as it has twice declined to do, with the Michigan constitutional provision here involved. It is not hard to read the handwriting on the wall, by whatever hand it may have been written. So what do you think, listeners? Could this have been kept in as it had been for 34 years and two failed appeals to the United States Supreme Court? Is it possible that because it was put into the Michigan Constitution by the will of the people and kept in the Michigan Constitution by the will of the people 30 years later when they adopted the 1963 new Constitution that we're working from now, that maybe the United States Supreme Court considered it a Michigan-specific exemption to a warrantless search? Or... Are you on the other side of it? Do you believe that a violation of the United States Constitution is a violation against the United States Constitution, regardless of who voted for it or how many times it was voted for by the citizens of Michigan? Look, there's no right or wrong answer here. I just want you to start thinking through the provisions of our Michigan Constitution and how you might rule if you were a justice being asked these types of legal questions. All right, I think that's going to do it then for episode 27 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. But please reach out to me either at TonySnyder.com or I'm on Twitter at TonySnyder. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at TonySnyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.